This is, uh, what's this, what's the stuff Marty keeps talking about for August the 31st? Last week there were some questions in Socrative I just didn't get to, so I'm going to just work them real fast. Uh, someone said out of the books that I recommended last week, and they're The Life of, uh, The um, uh, Imitation of Christ, uh, Holy Living, Holy Dying, uh, per- Christian Perfection, or uh, a series called A Holy and Devout Life by, um, by uh, William Law. Or the life of God and the soul of men by here is Skogal. Somebody asked the question, which would you recommend first? And I'd recommend the life of God and the soul of man. Uh, it, it's a fantastic book. I read it sometimes a couple times a year uh, by Henry Skogal, S-C-O-U-G-A-L. <clears throat> this was a book that when the Holy Club started at Oxford, again, that was a slam on there. It wasn't a compliment. Uh, when they got called the Holy Club. It wasn't people com- complimenting and they were deriding them. That This is the book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, that actually converted George Whitfield, if you've ever heard of him, the great British evangelist. Whitfield read this book and said he had found in this book the essence of religion. And it was the book. So it was a real popular book among those in the Holy Club. So that'd be the first one I'd, I'd recommend. Somebody asked, do these influential books precede Wesley's Aldersgate Experience, and if you you don't know what that is, that's okay. We'll talk about Aldersgate. I've got a video late, not tonight, but about that. Yes, all these books precede that. These were kind of, as I said, kind of formational in his life of helping him to try to figure out what is the Christian life and how does one live it. So that uh, is there a general biography to recommend? Yeah, it's a John Wesley by Fred Sanders. Uh, I wish we were related. <laughs> uh, we're not, but it's a really good read. Uh, he does a real good job. He's a brilliant scholar. And uh, so it's just called John Wesley uh, by Fred Sanders. Someone said, I just want to make sure I heard you correctly, that Wesley believed that one could be right by faith alone. And I wrote here my response, absolutely. Uh, John Wesley taught, believed, practiced that one could be right with God by faith alone. Uh, In fact, that is in concert with, uh, uh, he's an Anglican or Church of England. Church of England had 39 articles of religion uh, that that, that every priest had to swear to and subscribe to. And Article 11 in the Anglican, I'll read it to you, uh, we are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord Jesus Christ as Savior by faith and not by our works or deservings. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only. That's uh, Article uh, 11 out of the 39 articles that Wesley swore allegiance to by being a priest. And then as Wesley and his group sort of began to form uh, Wesley uh, developed what we call the 25 Articles of Methodism, the 25 Articles of Belief for them. And in Article 9, Wesley basically copied and pasted Article 11 from the uh, Church of England. So yes, and that's kind of, a, as I said to you before, that it's sort of a miscalculation or people think that Wesley would think that you're made right with God by works or you're, you're made right with God by your effort. He is crystal clear that one is made right with God by faith alone. Now, what might be of some question is the understanding, and Martin Luther made this same statement when he said that we are made right with God by faith alone, but the faith that makes us right is never alone, right? It's not just intellectual assent. It's not just an idea that's run through your head. Wesley's understanding and biblical understanding would be Galatians 5, 6, where Paul says nothing matters but faith working through love. Wesley would, I think, say, if your faith is not working through love, you might want to take a look at your faith, right? 
So, but there's a lot of misunderstanding, but no, ab- absolutely. Uh, last question. The Church of England, was it based on Catholicism or Protestantism at the time? Uh, or did they kind of make it up? Well, as you'll recall, I think in our first session I said that uh, the Church of England is the creation of Henry VIII. Uh, when he wanted to divorce Anne Boleyn uh, and the Pope wouldn't let him, uh, he decided to have her executed and then uh, to start his own church. Not a good sequence of events there, you know. <clears throat> Let's execute somebody and then we'll start our own church. Uh, so the, the, the Church of England is the creation of and the development of uh, Henry VIII's rejection, if you will, of uh, Catholicism. And in a lot of ways, um, the Church of England or Anglican faith has what we call sometimes Anglo-Catholic. It has some <clears throat> tradition and carryover from the Catholic Church in some of its uh, practices and some of its uh, it, uh, liturgy and those kind of things. But it is Protestant uh, church. So uh, those would be some of the questions that, that were asked last week that I wanted to just uh, kind of touch on real quick. Here we go. Um, <clears throat> final thought. Uh, one, of this, one of the ideas we, we dealt with, um, kind of the topic of sin, and some really good questions about that. And I, and I want to make this uh, just this statement here, that Wesley's point about intention or about a sin properly understood as a willful transgression of the known law is what Wesley, in my judgment, is trying to keep people from tormenting themselves that thinking they've sinned when they made a mistake, that they're sinners because they're humans, that they're sinners because they made an error in judgment. <clears throat> Wesley wants to help people understand that sin requires some level of culpability or intent for it to be uh, something to rise to the level. We, we, we'll look at some more of that as we get further in there. And, and I've often, when we get <clears throat> to another piece of this, as I read <clears throat> Wesley and as I read the Bible <clears throat> and Augustine and others, <clears throat> is that I think it's helpful <clears throat> to try to understand <clears throat> that sin is not just an activity <clears throat> But it's a symptom of something else, and it's an action that is really the result of misdirected love or disordered love. Instead of loving God and our neighbor as ourself, our love gets disordered, and we love something else or someone else in place of God in those matters. And so I think it's helpful not just to deal with the symptoms you know, what would be the list of things of murder and stealing and lying, those kind of things. But to understand its, its fundamental nature is that it is really disordered love. And um, that, that would be Wesley's really a significant contribution uh, to that. That now I have become the goal of my life, not God. I've become the source of my decisions. So... <clears throat> Let's say then, and remember, we're followers of Jesus. We're talking about John Wesley and his theology, but I want to be clear that uh, we're followers of Jesus. We just believe that John Wesley is a, is a good guy, to, someone we can learn from uh, like others. Tonight, I want to follow it up because as we talked about sin last week, to talk about sin and the human condition here. Now, it, I, I may have said this. I don't know. I, I'm old now. I say all kinds of things. I don't remember what I did. This, uh, right? I just say to Becky, did I say that before? Yeah. So um, it it seems to me that this is really important when we talk about salvation, when we talk about holiness, 
when we talk about Christian living, that in order for us to have an accurate understanding of that, we have to have a good diagnosis on the problem. Now, you know that when you go to the doctor that part of your doctor's skill is not how much medicine do they have, but can they diagnose carefully? Uh, Johns Hopkins has done a study that there is some, you know, out of uh, Baltimore, there's some evidence that there's likely 100,000 Americans who die who are permanently disabled each year due to medical misdiagnosis. That's a staggering number, isn't it? That 100,000 people die or are permanently disabled because of misdiagnosis. And so a lot of training for doctors after medical school is they're in their clinicals because they're learning how do we diagnose? Do we, do we understand the, 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 the symptoms here and like that? And so um, I want to work on this matter of sin and the human condition uh, as it relates to a proper, if you will, kind of diagnosis of the human condition. So in that, we'll start with this. Number one is the universal experience of sin. Now, Wesley's an orthodox theologian. Ortho, meaning correct, and doxal, doxos is action or, or belief. Uh, so he's orthodox in that he is in the stream of correct Christian teaching for millennia. And Wesley, like other orthodox Christians, starts with the assumption that sin is a universal experience. Romans 3.23 uh, 3, says what? For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Uh, in Romans 5, 12, through sin, or through one man, sin entered the world and death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, I do want to warn you on that. Now, we don't have time to unpack all that. But it, that Romans 5 has been a kind of an interesting area to study for a lot of people in this respect. Uh, there are some that would suggest that Romans 5 saying, through one man, sin entered the world. And death spread to all men, human beings, because all sin. There is not one thought here in this passage of why people sin. It is the assertion that they do, that they have, but not why. And I would go so far as to say, you might thought this is a thought. A friend of mine has a taught me a thought to say, like, you might be right. You might be right. Uh, I might be right, I might not. That I'm not terribly convinced that anywhere in the Bible it tells you why people sin. It tells you they do. It says universally. Now, I know some of the texts that are referred to, but that's a fascinating thing, that there is a universal experience of sin that everyone, if you will, agrees with. But why? What's the reason? There, we're going to get into some of that as far as what is a, a proper explanation of Wesley and others as to that. So how can we account for? How, how do we understand? It's the universal experience of sin. Uh, 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 G.K. Chesterton, uh, the great British uh, Catholic theologian, uh, said that there's one doctrine in the Bible that you can verify. It's called the fallen nature of human beings. You can see that everywhere, right? You know, when, when children are first born, 
They're wonderful and sweet until they can talk. And then the first words that come out of their mouth is mine. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe mama, I don't know. But it's usually mine. And children's thoughts are it's mine because it's mine. It's mine because I see it. And so, but that universal experience. So how do we account for that? Well, here's the other point here. The universal reason for sin. The universal reason for sin. Um, I have a quote here on your handout there by Eugene Peterson. Uh, Maybe some of you are are familiar with him, but he was a Presbyterian pastor, wrote lots of books, uh, did his own translation of the Bible, The Message. And Eugene Peterson makes this, that that this idea of, of the universal reason for sin in this matter. He said, there's a strong ascetic element in true spiritual theology that following Jesus means not following your impulses and appetites, and whims, and dreams, all of which have, are sufficiently damaged by sin to make them unreliable guides for getting any place worth going. That's an interesting phrase here that, he's, that Peterson saying this statement that, that our, our impulses, our desires, our appetites are sufficiently damaged by the results of sin. This universal experience of sin. And this uh, statement or this idea is really an understanding that Wesley had and taught, and we'll look at this, is depravity. Depravity. I want to help you. I want to look at and define here of what depravity is. Some people don't or have thought that Wesley did not believe in what we call total depravity. Have you heard that? That, you know, human beings are kind of good on their own and they just need a little help here and there. That's not true. Wesley subscribed to the Orthodox Reform teaching that human beings were totally depraved. Now, I'm going to try to give you a little definition here. What does that mean based on that? And then how do we understand that to work in terms of this matter? It seems to me, uh, doing some reflection reading on this, that this might be a definition of depravity. It is the inability to change one's condition of needing life. Sin, remember, remember the penalty of sin is uh, penalty of sin is death, and one's lack of inclination to one. So I I see depravity in this respect that it's lack of it's the inability, and it's lack of inclination. Uh, and, and I kind of ground that, uh, if you will, in uh, Romans 6.23 that says the wages of sin is what? Death. 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 And, but. but, yeah, it's other. that's a good part. But the free gift of God is eternal life. That this depravity, um, this, this uh, participating in sin has really uh, caused... The human nation, human human people, the human race, uh, to lack life. Remember, Jesus said, "I've come that you might have forgiveness." <laughs> Smart Alex. <laughs> See, Jesus said, "I've come that you might have life." Yeah. The problem with human beings in sin is not just they're guilty; they're dead. They need life. I think I said in here before, 
that Jesus did not come to make bad people good. There's several religions do that, you know. I mean, you look around, you, you could find other religions that make people good. Their lives are increased, they're moral, they're, they love their kids. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He made, came to make dead people alive. Because the term there, when Jesus said, I've come to you, I have life, is the life term called zoe. There are two words in Greek for life. One is bios, we get the word biology, physical life. And then we get the, the term zoe, which is the life that comes from God. And so human beings in their participation in sin, as the Bible says in Genesis, the day you eat of this fruit, you're going to die. Now, they didn't fall over and drop dead right there, did they? What This term, this... I think this is where it's important. This understanding of dying is not like a corpse laying on the floor. Inactive. Just laying around. Death in the scriptures seems to suggest a break in the source of life and relationship. I'll say this. You're going to look at this later. In Luke 15, when the prodigal son comes back, the father's comment is, this son of mine who was gone, lost. But he said, no, this son of mine who was dead. Huh. The Bible uses the word death in a different way than we do. And we can't pack it up with our thinking here. The Bible understands death as a separation from the source of life. God, God says that when you do this, you're going to die. Well, again, they didn't fall over and drop dead right there but they were separated now from the source of life. You know, 1 Peter says that God who indwells in immortality and life. And so this idea that, that we have this inability to change our condition by, of needing life, right? And we have this lack of inclination. We're not even interested. If you want to see that, you can see Romans chapter 3. Or Paul, Paul says, no one seeks after God, no one goes after him, but they've all turned aside. And so Wesley said in accepting this doctrine of total depravity, uh, in writing in his journal, he uh, makes, makes this statement that by coming to this doctrine, and he believed it, he came to the very edge of Calvinism. That was his statement. He said, I came to the very edge because in Reformed theology, the very first point in the Reformed theology in the TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, is total depravity. Wesley believed that. He did not believe human beings were able in their own right to be able, if you will, to uh, come to, to have life in themselves. Wesley's an Orthodox Christian that people not only sin as an act, but they are born into this world with a bent towards sin turned in on themselves. Turned in on themselves. In their affections. Self is their goal of their affections and desires. Now, thoughts and opinions, teacher, not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the community church, elders, leadership. I just want you to think about something. Part of being a college professor is to make people think. And, and I, you know, I, this, this is not as much Wesley as it is probably Cliff's interpretation of Wesley. But the, the majority concept of this depravity 
by many is that you and I are born with a sinful nature. You heard that? That's kind of the standard discussion about this. Why do people sin? Because they have a sinful nature. Why do people sin? Why, you know, okay. And that's a pretty standard explanation. And I, I think there's some evidence for that. Uh, but I think as well, because of this understanding that sin brings death, sin is the separation then from the source of life. I wonder, and some theologians are doing this as well, not just me, I wonder if people are born depraved or they're born deprived. They lack the resource and the ability to resist sin. They lack the power. Why? They've, re- they've removed themselves from the source of life. That's why Jesus said, I've come, you have life. That's why sin's consequence is death. This is a little bit like Augustine. When Augustine, we said this, I think, that, that Augustine talked about these kinds of things as if that sin was blindness. It isn't something, it's the absence of something. That, that, that this sin or this understanding of why, why are human beings turned in on themselves from birth? Because they don't have anything but themselves. And they're turned in. And so this idea of depravity, or de, some, some theologians call it depravity. And you know, nature abhors a vacuum. And if there's an empty spot here, it's going to turn in. And human beings turn in. So total depravity, now, maybe go it this way, total depravity is a religious term. It doesn't mean that human beings are wicked in everything they do. Some unconverted people have faithful marriages. First responders that aren't followers of Jesus give their lives for others. Some live as honest citizens. What is it? It, it, It's not that human beings are as wicked as they can be. It's that they're turned in on themselves to the extent this is the only resource I have. Me. Which means I don't possess life. I have bios life. I don't have zoe life. Does that make sense? I'm just giving you a kind of an alternative to think about. Instead of being born with something, maybe you're born without something. And that's why our language is we invite Jesus to come what? Into our hearts. We invite him in. And I probably did this before, but it's only in English. It's only in English, but it's kind of fascinating for you on the side of here. I'll just have to tell you about it. <clears throat> but if you take the word evil, spell it backwards. It's interesting that this is a a formulation of human beings that have somehow turned it backwards. Backwards. That instead of having something, I'm 
lacking something, it turns that bent toward away from God to me. And I wrote this way. This breach in relationship of turning away from God as a source of life means that I'm now the goal of my life. My affections, my desires, my I'm the goal of my life. This disorder occurs in our desires and our actions and depravity then follows. We make poor decisions. We do stupid things. We accumulate appetites and desires and other things we weren't starting with, but we accumulated them over time. So it's possible, I'm just giving you a possibility here, that we're born deprived without and through our own actions and efforts, we accumulate a depravity that we see in habits, practices, actions. I just like for you to think about that because to me, it makes, personally, it makes more sense. Again, thoughts and opinions, teacher, not necessarily thoughts and opinions, cross community church, that was the issue. <laughs> depravity is, however, <clears throat> I will say, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> throughout Scripture, um, there are various, <clears throat> I think you've got this on here. <clears throat> anyway, that, that's a heavy thought. Any questions or thoughts? That's a, I know that may be a reformulation of some things. Thought? Question? After class? <laughs> <clears throat> I've been here since 8 o'clock. No. <laughs> this morning, no. <clears throat> it just... <clears throat> Just, it's just the question of, am I <clears throat> depraved or depra- am I depraved or am I deprived or both? But where do I start? Do I start deprived? Or I'm empty? Life has been taken away. Every baby that's born is going to die. Because life... <clears throat> That's why Jesus said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Not when we're born, we have to learn stuff. Mm-hmm. So, since we don't have, mm-hmm. we don't have knowledge. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> yeah. Can I recap and make sure I'm catching <laughs> Sure. Yeah. No, they already opened the can. Already opened the can. So, if we're born with something, say we're born with sin, mm-hmm. we're born with a sinful nature, nature uh-huh. mm-hmm. um, or we're born without something, <clears throat> we're born without God. So if we're born without God and we're just needing to invite him in, does that mean that we're not born into a sinful nature? If you're looking at it mm-hmm. from that direction, and it's like, no, we don't have a sinful nature, we just need to add something in that wasn't there with that, that's essentially it from the standpoint that we're not born with something. Right. The word there, when, we, when you say it's a thing, it's reifying. If you, you go, where is the sinful nature? You know, where is it? Um, but I'm saying that when we're born, if we are deprived, that we are without God's life and vitality. And so we're turning in ourselves. We're, we're like consuming ourselves because that that's all we do. I don't. I don't think. I, I wouldn't call it a nature at all. Our nature isn't to satisfy ourselves on the mm-hmm. outward end. It's, and then when mm-hmm. we get to Christ, yeah. then we all of a sudden we change our perspective mm-hmm. and we're looking in mm-hmm. to out. I'm nervous about the word nature 
because it is, the word in theological terms is you're reifying or you're making this into a thing. So then what do you do with a sinful nature? Do you have to get pulled out? Do you have to get it repressed? Um, what do you do with it? What's the answer to that, in other words? Yeah. yeah. But what, what happens to it? I can tell you, I can tell you what some of the formulation is. That if you have a sinful nature in that regard, when do you get rid of it? Huh? Some choice. Okay, so huh? when you die. So so I'm not. Is the nature still there even though we accept? Yeah, I'm just. I, I, yeah, just here's the question then: Who's your savior really then? Death. Physical death. Hmm? Yeah, physical death is, is able to do something for you Jesus can't. Yeah, you had a question. I was just kind of looking at it like this. I, I would find it a deprived proposition that you mentioned, but when, when you think of the frame, I look at that as, as being an adjective, right? Mm -hmm. So if one's deprived, and you think of original sin and mm -hmm. sin nature, would that adjective even at the moment of conception or mm -hmm. maybe wouldn't that fit as an adjective that would describe the image bearer of God because they're deprived and cut off? You mean because they're deprived and cut off they are depraved? Yes, that would be like an adjective that would describe yeah. the condition. In, in the sense, if I'm following you, in the sense that because of, because of being deprived, what am I going to do? I'm going to live a depraved life from the standpoint of turning inward on myself and not toward God. And this is, I know some new ideas. I'm just trying to get you to think about this because this is where I take umbrage with the NIV. And I think it's uh, the old NIV. By the way, they've changed it. They used to translate sarkikos. Did I say this last week? They, they, they translated sarkikos, which is flesh, sinful nature. That's not what it means. It means sarkikos. It means flesh. That's a theological interpretation. That it, and since then, by the way, NIVs changed it. In their new revision, they changed it because they realized they were pushing a theological point by saying you have this now based on an interpretation of what? Just leave it flesh. Flesh. You know? Because the word flesh, we said, somebody, Rebecca. This is not too deep of a thought, but, but, you know, whenever you, and I think you shared that same thought about being taught, uh -huh. because you prayed in Sunday school a few weeks back. But when you said it then, and again we said it today, I feel a lightness in my spirit. Hmm. I feel like that's, hmm. that feels true to me, not that I'm, I'm uh -huh. based on feelings, etc. You were part of the universal experience. I mean, yeah, yes. <laughs> you didn't miss that.
Uh huh. Hmm. It's it's worth thinking about. I'm you know I'm not I'm not asking you to change your theology. I'm just telling you there are there is a uh, this is the minority report that says that there is a good deal of theological reflection to say are people born with something or born without, and because of that it it changes some of the calculus. You had a, um, back to your nature of wars. Back to, uh, we all. You're a bit talk for the recording here that people have a void. You know, Augustine said, "In everyone is a God-shaped vacuum, and we will not rest until we rest in you." There's something missing in humanity's life and experience. There's something, whether it's this, whether we're talking about, there's something missing, and there this has all kinds of implications. We'll talk about about our understanding of sanctification. How far? Can the work of Jesus go toward dealing with either this nature of depravity or this depravity? How far can the work of Jesus go? This is what we call the it's our anthropology, how we understand human. Stuart? Well, her comments were life-giving as well. And I, this is a theological problem for me. Mm. I mean, if I'm born with a sinful nature, it seems to me that God has set up sort of an unfair or a, um, a competitive kind of relationship. That I've, I now have this sinful nature, and I've got to overcome it. I've got to fight. Well, is my sinful nature deeper and more than somebody else's? It, it, it's separating from God. So for me, it, it has been a real problem because it's... God created me that way and made this hard on me. Mm-hmm. That seems unjust. Okay. That, and, and so this is helpful. Okay. Um, but I'm going to press you a little bit here. God did not create that. Remember, when He creates in the garden, He says, when He creates human beings, He actually says there, Tov me owed. Very good. The intruder, sin, is what created this problem. Not God. So if I'm born with a sinful nature, okay, um, but I don't attribute it to God. But not to God. Right. 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 Yeah. God Can't. seems to allow. If 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 we take the position that we're born with a sinful nature, mm-hmm. and then we're going to say that God didn't create the sinful nature, right? God's allowing the sinful yes. nature. Yes. Yes. Because that seems fundamentally. Yeah. <laughs> because God allows everything. Okay, let me back up here. I, okay, but but let me back up. This comes back in my judgment. This idea of evil and where do we lay it? Whose feet comes back to the in my judgment the kind of universe that God wanted. And what kind of universe is that? God wanted a universe in which love was possible. In order to have a universe in which love is possible, he has to sovereignly cede some freedom to those creatures. 
It's because of God's desire to have a universe where it's possible, not, not automatic, that this is where we lay evil at the feet of. That people misused any measure of freedom that they might have. Now, you're raising the other question, though, is, but then I'm born without the resource to resist that. That's where the gospel. That's where the need for the gospel and the work of Jesus for all humanity. Yeah. Just one more. Sure. Um, so could it be then that you, you're, you're spiritually deprived, but that you are born, your flesh is born with a sin nature, <laughs> and that would make sense with like 1 Corinthians mm-hmm. 13, no temptation exceeds you except when it's come to man. Yeah. Now you've got a free will to overcome that, and there seems to be through the scriptures that talks about how weak the flesh is. Mm-hmm. So it, would you agree that your flesh would be depraved naturally? Weak. It's weak because it's not actuated by the presence of God. And it is part of that fallenness that's not actuated by Zoe life. And so it gives in. It can't resist. It's up against things it can't resist. I'm just, again, I, I think you're raising a great question, and I, and I think it's part of it. But if we start deprived with no outside resources... The life of God is gone. That's why human beings die. From the very beginning, they start dying. There are no internal resources now to deal with a world that's fallen. And this is where the gospel, and why the gospel is so imperative for us to preach and teach, is to rescue people from that kind of, of, if you will, weakness to be able to deal with those issues example that's for your children too why it's so important to raise our children with the word of God and the church because it helps them to deal with all these things right that's probably yes and again I, I'm, I, I am not backing off of the universality of sin don't say what I'm not saying I'm not backing off that everyone has been a sinner I'm just saying and the Bible doesn't really give a clear answer why. But I, I, I worry personally, maybe working with students for so long, I worry that their notion is, well, I have a sinful nature. That's what it is. That's the way it is. Instead of this notion of, wait a minute, hold on, where'd you get that idea? And it's just sort of like, give up. Now, <clears throat> I gotta go on, but here, here, are, here are some uh, 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 evidences of that human beings are depraved. You know? Again, I'm talking about when they come into the world, deprived, but then they accumulate these things. Notice what, what the scriptures here, they have a deceitful heart. Again, this starts from being empty, not having resources, being willing to do anything I can because I'm the goal of my life. They're blinded in their minds. They knew God. Romans 1.21 says, they knew God. Wasn't They're not ignorant but they refuse to honor or give Him thanks. Romans 1.32, they know God's decree. They reject it. They know it. Which raises an interesting thought here about humanity is that knowing something does not necessarily, necessarily mean you can pull it off and do it. They know God's decree and they don't do it. 
They know God in this manner. They turn aside, seek God. They're dead in sin. Remember, dead, again, it's not like a corpse laying on the floor. It's out of relationship with the source of life, the source of life. They refuse to receive Him. They're children of wrath. So all of those suggestions there, if you will, are this understanding that human beings are in a terrible shape. Wesley believes that human beings on their own, as I said before, are not inclined to return to God and they have the inability to receive life. They don't, we don't have life in ourselves. We don't, so they're, they're, they're enabled and they have the inability and they're disinclined. So Wesley accepts all of this. So how, here's the question that we have to work through. Depravity is very slick I, under that, under those different images. How does Wesley hold to total depravity but that all people can still be saved? And this is where Wesley uh, uh, makes a change in uh, what might be some Reformed theology. Remember, what we have here, if you will, is a universal experience of sin, a universal reason for sin, and now we have a universal offer. I want to walk through this just a bit. John Wesley did not believe, nor did Jacob Arminius. Neither of them believed in free will. I know that is a shock to people. I can show you page number. None of them believed in free will. That one can wake up one day and just on their own decide, hey, I think I'll be a Christian. You know, that was kind of a heresy in my... When I look back on that, when I was a kid growing up in church, you know, we'd have a big service and they'd say, well, you know, uh, you know, if you come to the altar and come... But, but if not, if you know, if tomorrow or the next day, if you decide you want to be a Christian and you just do this, I'd say, here, that's nuts. Nobody. Here's what Wesley and Arminius believed. They did not believe in free will. They did believe in free grace. And this is different than Reformed. In Reformed theology, there is a thing called common grace. It's like the other day, it rained at Stuart's house and it rained at my house. So it rained on the just and the unjust. <laughs> See? Just remember that? That's what Jesus said, right? Right, Stuart? Yeah. Rained on the just and then also the unjust. Uh, common grace is the understanding that God sustains and and. Uh, providentially cares for the world and humanity. But that kind of grace cannot convert. It cannot convert. It's only keeping humanity kind of from, you know, eating their children or something, you know, or, you know, just kind of just keep us from becoming demons. But Wesley believed, John Wesley and Jacob Arminius believed in something that some of the church fathers believed is called prevenient grace. And this is where West said he came right up to the edge of, of Calvinism. Total depravity, total depravity. But where, where Calvin says, okay, common grace is all you get for everybody. But there's only elected, electing grace for a certain group. Some are elected to be saved and some are elected to be damned. And if you're in this elected for, to be saved, you're good. If you're elected to be damned, not so good. 
so that Wesley and Arminius believed in what we call prevent. Now, that's an old word. It comes from French prevere or Latin prevere. It really means preparatory, preparatory grace. It, it, it's preparatory grace. It's previous to what we would call conversion. And here's, here's what I would call it in this respect. Prevenient grace is grace that enlightens our understanding or our circumstances and excites the initial desire to please God. Prevenient grace is grace that enlightens our understanding or our, how we are and excites, if you will, or engages or causes there to be interest to please God. Now, this is uh, part of Wesley's methodology to say that where in Reformed theology, common grace is for everybody, and Wesley isn't common grace, but prevenient grace is the kind of grace that can lead to salvation. It's not irresistible. It is God's gracious desire to enlighten us about our situation and excite in us initial desire. I think this is related to a song we used to sing by the great hymn writer, John Newton. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. That wonderful song, Amazing Grace. What was it? It was grace that taught my heart to fear or to say, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. Wait a minute, there, there's something amiss. It, it's grace that does this. It's God's graciousness. In this John 1, 9, it says that Jesus coming into the world, enlightening every man or every person in the world. And so, prevenient grace. When people say, well, what's the difference in Wesleyan theology and Reformed theology? A lot of people say, free will. I say, no. That's not the difference in these two systems. The difference in Wesleyan theology and Reformed theology is prevenient grace. That Wesley believes there's enough grace, free grace, for everyone who will respond to God's initiative, to God's anticipatory, prevenient, his, his preparatory kind of grace. Okay, so what is prevenient? Here, here we go. Prevenient grace is rooted in. I think there are three things that from the scripture, prevenient grace is rooted in. We're talking about this universal offer. Universal offer. And I, and I know, you know, that, that see, in Romans 4, here, just like if you have your Bibles, in, in Romans 4, there's a fascinating passage here because people I know can, if you will, um, get to thinking that, that because people can respond because prevenient grace enables that. Wesley would say that prevenient grace here, preparatory, is rooted in certain things, but it's, it's not a free will, it's a freed will. A freed will. That God's prevenient grace frees the will. How? By enlightening them. Hey, here's where you are, Cliff. Here's your situation. This is where you are. And then exciting the desire to say, well, I, I want to 
I want to please you then. That it's not a free will, it's a freed will. That God does that through, through His grace. Um, and it enables us. So, so uh, we'll come back to this. So it's rooted in the following. I think it's rooted in God's character. Prevent grace, prevenient grace. I'll tell you this. Wesley said that the, the doctrine, and he, this is his belief, if you don't believe in prevenient grace, if you're in the, if, you know, wonderful friends in the Reformed tradition, if you're in the Reformed tradition, there are two levels of, there's, there's, there's common grace that everybody can have, everybody does have. There is effervescent grace, which is an interesting phrase, that some people have that makes them think they're saved. And they do good works. But it's temporary. And when they take maybe 10, 12 years. Calvin writes about effervescent grace. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting in his works that, that it's temporary and you think you're saved, but you're not. And then there is electing grace. That's the ones who were before elected to be saved. And they're saved regardless. Now, I, I understand that from this standpoint. I, I want to give Calvin his, his dues. Yes. I've, I've missed a couple of weeks. So what is the definition of common grace? What is common grace? Common grace is God's providential care for the universe. Sending rain, uh, <clears throat> uh, 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 working in, in, in humanity and in cultures and like that to just keep the world in order. And it has nothing to do with salvation. Nothing. Okay. Nothing to do at all. And, and Wesley believes in that kind of common providential kind of grace that, that God is good. So that's what I'm saying. This understanding comes back to God's character. God is good. Calvin says that God is good. So his providential grace sends rain to that. He, he, he causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust, all those kinds of things. And then, but there's effervescent. But his strong thing, again, is that God has elected certain people sovereignly to salvation. And if you are, you're right. If you're not, you're not. Nothing you can do about it. Wesley said that notion that God would create people for damnation, for eternity, does too much damage to the character of God for him. He said it just does too much damage to think that God would create an eternal being for the purpose of living eternally in hell. He said I, I, it does too much damage to God's character. Now, I'll tell you what. Again, I want to give Calvin some props here. When he comes to that conclusion about God's sovereignty, Wesley isn't God's sovereignty, the We'll see that later. Calvin is so, con well, back. Calvin is in the in a battle with a sovereign church. Remember who that is? Roman Catholic Church. And they're saying, "You get involved in this Reformation, we'll put you out. We got the keys to the kingdom." Remember, in Ro in Roman Catholicism. You get excommunicated, you're out. So what does Calvin try to do? What he does, he, does, he locates salvation where? In God. 
in God and says the church can do anything they want to to you, but they can't touch you because God is sovereign. Now, Wesley believed that. But this is where Wesley and others believe he took it too far to the point of double predestination to where there are some people elected to be saved and others elected to be damned. And what is interesting to me, and I've got it right here somewhere in my notes, I'm sure I do, I better, that at the Council of Orange in 529 uh, A.D., that the, the, the doctrine of predestination for this, the damned and the saved was never adopted because it did too much damage to the character of God. So Wesley believed that universal sin and universal reason for sin, that there, needed, there would be in the character of God a universal offer. If there's a universal problem, Wesley's belief in the character of God is if there's a universal problem, that God's going to offer a universal solution. Offer it. I'm going to demand it. This is because God really loves the world. Now this, I think I put this on your, your deal. This is not universalism, okay? Let's be clear. <laughs> and that's the charge sometimes at Wesley. Universalism that everybody's okay and everybody's going to go to heaven and it'll be all great. That's not what Wesley's saying. Wesley's simply saying the universal nature of the problem because of God's justice and character will offer a universal solution. He said, otherwise you destroy the character of God as merciful, as just. And so it, it, it really does come down to this. And I want to show you, I think I got a slide that, that Wesley really sees God as holy love. Let me read you something. Randy Maddox, who's a, a great guy, said this. The fundamental difference between Wesley and his Calvinist opponents really lie more in their understanding of the nature of God than in their evaluation of the human situation. That's where the difference is. And I want to suggest this. This circle on the left is how I kind of grew up. God is merciful, yeah, but he's also wrathful. Or God is holy, yeah, but he's also loving. I call it the yeah, but theology. He's that, yeah, but he's that. And it's almost, in my judgment, as God got in conflict with himself. And is having to kind of work his way out of who he is. On the right, that God is holy love. And his sovereignty is an expression of holy love. And his wrath is an expression of holy love. And his justice. Listen, if you just say God is these things individually, you can have sovereignty that has no moral component to it. You're just the boss. Love brings moral content to character. If you say God is love, you said something about His moral character. If you say sovereign, you haven't said anything about His moral character. You've talked about His power and authority. That's all you said. If you say He's just, you haven't said anything about His moral. Is He, is he just in the sense of what way? So I would suggest to you that this notion is 
This is the character of God. I call it holy love. And any expression of God's nature is informed by holy love. When God is sovereign, it's because He loves the world and loves people. When God executes wrath, it's because He loves the world. In fact, in some theological books, you'd be, be interested maybe that the wrath of God is often discussed under the topic of the love of God. Because God's love is not soft. It's not indulgent. God loves the world and wants it to operate right. So Wesley contends that this understanding of prevenient grace is a relationship to the nature of who God is. That God loves the world. That God is seeking the world. God is not willing that any should perish. And so it's really rooted rooted there. Man, we got to stop. It's time. <laughs> We're going to go another week or so. Uh, but prevenient grace is, again, this previous to drawing people, calling them to himself through that. Stuart. Well, I was thinking about the title of the class and the Wesleyan stuff. Provenient grace, these ideas, how would you say this plays out in the life of Crossing's community? What, as an elder, as a leader, how does this sort of play out, and what should we know we are a part of by these ideas? Very good question. Thank you. you. How about go to the last part of your page, of your handout? I got a so what. It's also some resources if you want to read some other stuff. Stuart, I think three things here, and this is what I try to say, is that human beings are fallen. We have to begin there. And they're disordered in their affections and goal in life. And must receive new life from God to reorder those affections. And so what do we as a church communicate and do? What can we see over mm-hmm. the next three months mm-hmm. in the way this church is led, in the, the doctrines mm-hmm. that are taught? Mm-hmm. What's unique that we ought to hear and look for to tie this together? Number two. <laughs> <laughs> You're not moving the office. <laughs> we, we didn't rehearse this before class. We should have. Any movement toward God in us was begun by God's gift of His work of prevenient grace in our lives. That we need to communicate to people that any movement, anything's going on is a is a gift of God's grace. That we need to elevate that to say and help people to start looking for it. To say, how have you experienced the grace of God as He draws, as He excites in you the desire to fit, uh, live for Him? And then God's prevenient grace gives us a freed will to respond to the offer of the gospel. So we need to be offering the gospel to people, knowing that God has already been there. Tell a quick story. Um, and Henry Blackaby, I think, is, is marvelous about this. That I don't ever say to people anymore, hey, God wants to use you. I hate that language. God wants to use you in the ministry. No, God wants you to join Him. He's already out there. You're not, God isn't showing up when you show up. 
I never encourage, God wants to use you in ministry. God, well, you know, no. God wants you to join Him. Prevenient grace means God is previous to, anticipatory, out there in the world, working. Quick story. When I, a few years ago, we lived in an apartment and Becky was gone on some kind of choir tour thing with the school. I can't remember. And so I'm out jogging. I worked out, had a little track. And there's this guy running. And just running, running, running. And he's got on high top tennis shoes. And of course, I've run for years. And I'm thinking. So I just said, man, you're working hard. Those shoes are not made for running. And he looks at me and goes, well, he said, I've been trying to work out, trying to get in shape. He said, plus, I'm trying to get my life straightened out with God. Do you know anything about God? <laughs> I looked like, I thought, where's the camera? <laughs> right? Where's the camera? Led this guy to Christ in my apartment complex. Worked with him every Sunday in discipling. He got married and moved off. And... Uh, and, 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 and one day we're at a Promise Keeper meeting in Dallas, Texas at the Texas Stadium football game. And I'm sitting there, thousands of people. We're going to go for lunch and they go, Cliff! I'm paranoid to begin with, okay? So I'm thinking, who knows I'm here? What's going on? And by the way, I, I'd given that guy, because I always tell Becky I need to buy three or four pairs of running shoes for ministry. Never know. So I gave him a pair of running shoes so he could run. So it's been a few years. We're at that deal. He says, Cliff! And I look around. It's Tom. Oh, my goodness. I said, what are you doing here? He said, I go to Midwest City Assembly of God Church. He said, I've got a group of guys here. We're coming to Promise Keepers. And look at him. He's got the shoes I gave him. Oh. Now, I didn't bring God to that situation. That's God's prevenient grace that He's out there drawing and anticipating and dealing with people. And so, Stuart, we just have to go into our world and quit asking people to, to, to God wants to use you and say, God just wants you to join. Yeah, so when you go to work, when you, wherever you go, just be looking. Where's God? Isn't that just the, the planting, the watering, and the harvesting? Sure. Everybody, you don't always yeah. need to see all of it. Yeah. But you just have to go and yeah. be his hands and feet. Exactly. He nudges you in the spirit because it's mm-hmm. not your job to save them. Yeah. They're not going to do anything. Yeah. It's already God's spirit working in them to accept what he wants. I think so. I just think I carried a burden for a long time of thinking that I kind of brought God to the situation. And understanding prevenient grace that God loves the world. It really does. And he's trying to excite. This is a really a term from the Puritans. The Puritans, and the English Puritans, would talk about how the grace of God would excite someone from their deadness. And so I just want to try to join him. So that's what I think, Stuart. And so we, prevenient grace gives us the free will to respond to the offer of grace. And we get out there in the world and, and we just join him and see what he's up to. And I haven't had that happen a lot, but I've had it happen a few times. And just to say, well, I wonder what God's doing today. I wonder where he's at. Okay? Hey, you guys have been great. I'm sorry we didn't get finished. We'll, we'll, we'll continue.